Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 8.2 Seeing the Light. Welcome back to 21, everybody. Before we get started this week, I want to thank everyone who listens to this show on a weekly basis. I'm deeply honored that you enjoy the show and you continue to share it with your friends, family, coworkers, and anyone else you'd frankly would think enjoy it. This is only the 20th episode and we have already passed 100 listeners. This is way more than I thought I would have at this point in the show, so thank you all very much for the support. It's a lot of fun to not have to scroll down as far when I search for it on Spotify or iTunes, and I have you guys to thank for that. Last week, we introduced the eighth wonder of the ancient world, the Great Lighthouse of Alexandria. Built in the harbor of Alexandria, a metropolis on the Mediterranean coast in northern Egypt, this lighthouse shone out into the dark waters of the Mediterranean and guided many ships safely to its shore. It stood towering over the Mediterranean as a symbol of the economic power of Alexandria. One of the fastest growing cities in history, it went from a settlement to a metropolis in less than a hundred years. And it would become the focal point of not just the ancient world, but also into Byzantine, Arab, and medieval times, and even beyond. For this episode, though, we're going to do something a little different. The Pharos is one of the few wonders on this list, which we have first-hand accounts of still around to us today. Writers, travelers, explorers, geographers, etc. traveled to the shores of Alexandria throughout history and wrote down what they saw. We have a number of these writings still around to us today. Most of the wonders on this list were either not around long enough for writings to be written about them, or, as in the case of the Terracotta Army in the Hanging Gardens, were built by a regime that didn't last much longer beyond the completion of the wonder. And while the Pharos was built by Hellenistic Egyptians, and Alexandria itself changed hands a number of times, the important role that the Pharos played was appreciated by all. The practical use of the Pharos was too important to the economy of the world for anyone to even think about destroying it. But it's difficult for us today, some 600 years after the Great Lighthouse's collapse, to be able to appreciate and understand this role that the Pharos played in the naval theater of the world. Fortunately though, we don't have to imagine. Today, we're going to read a number of these writings that we still have. None of them are exceptionally long, so I will read them in their entirety. Written by historians, geographers, and travelers, they give us a glimpse as to how the ancient peoples saw the Pharos. Very rarely are we able to look into the ancient world on a personal level like this, so I want to take this opportunity since it has come about. We will begin with why the Pharos was so needed in the harbor of Alexandria. Diodorus Siculus, an ancient Greek historian, demonstrates this importance of the Pharos in one of his writings. Originally from Sicily, he would have been intimately familiar with the hazards of sailing in the ancient world. So he, of all people, was able to convey the need of the Great Lighthouse 
to the ships in the area and the dangers of the Egyptian coastline. He says the following, The voyage along the coast of the sea, the Mediterranean, is exceedingly long, and any landing is especially difficult. For from Peritonium in Libya, as far as Iope in Caoel Syria, a voyage along the coast of some 5,000 stades, there is not to be found a safe harbor except Pharos. And apart from these considerations, a sandbank extends along particularly the whole length of Egypt, not discernible to any who approach without previous experience of these waters. Consequently, those who think that they have escaped the peril of the sea, and in their ignorance turn with gladness towards the shore, suffer unexpected shipwreck when their vessels suddenly run aground. And now and then, mariners who cannot see land in time, because the country lies so low, are cast ashore before they realize it, some of them on marshy and swampy places, and others on a desert region. This description of the Egyptian coastline is accurate. It was incredibly treacherous to sailors in the ancient world. So finding a safe harbor was incredibly difficult. But the Pharos was able to guide ships around the maze of sandbanks, reefs, and shallow waters safely into the harbor of Alexandria. Strabo, the famous Greek geographer and historian, also writes about the importance of the Pharos in guiding ships safely to Alexandria. After visiting the city in 24 BC, he writes, There is a rock, which is washed all around by the sea, and has upon it a tower that is admirably constructed of white marble with many stories, and bears the same name as the island. This was an offering made by Sostratus of Cnidus, a friend of the king's, for the safety of mariners, as the inscription says. For since the coast was harborless and low on either side, and also had reefs and shallows, those who were sailing from the open sea thither needed some lofty and conspicuous sign to enable them to direct their course aright to the entrance of the harbor. Both of these men witnessed firsthand the need for the Pharos due to the hazardous conditions of the Mediterranean Sea around Alexandria. This is something you don't usually see with the wonders of the ancient world. Most were not built out of necessity. Most were built for seemingly ridiculous and frankly narcissistic reasons. But the Pharos was different. Without it, the ancient world, and the rest of the world consequently, would have looked vastly different. In the first century AD, Pliny the Elder, the famous Roman historian, commented on the supposed cost of the great lighthouse. He records that the towering structure was rumored to have cost more than 800 talents of silver. That's more than 23 tons of silver. This piqued my curiosity, so I did the quick math to figure out how much this would have cost in today's money. A silver talent is about 33 kilograms or 73 pounds. And one talent of silver is worth anywhere between $16,000 and $17,000. In today's money, the Great Lighthouse would have cost around 13 billion US dollars. 13 billion. This is obviously a massive sum of money. 
It was also rumored to have cost one-tenth of the treasury that Ptolemy had at the time. Needless to say, the importance that Alexandria had on the trade network around the known world, the Pharos was a smart investment. The Egyptians more than made back what they put into the Pharos. Pliny and a few other historians also commented on the light itself from the lighthouse. They claimed that it was visible from such distance that it compared to a star or a moon once it came on the horizon, and that only the curvature of the earth limited its gaze to the sailors out at sea. Indeed, it must have looked like a star or moon when it first appeared on the horizon, especially to those new sailors on the Mediterranean. The writings go on. Achilles Tatius, an early Greek and Roman writer, lived in Alexandria in the early 2nd century AD. He describes the Pharos as the most remarkable and extraordinary structure upon which it rested. It was like a mountain, almost reaching the clouds, in the middle of the sea. Below the building flowed the waters. It seemed to be as it were suspended above their surface while at the top of this mountain rose a second sun to be a guide for ships. This description of a second sun is a perfect way to describe the light from the Pharos, especially if you lived in Alexandria. There were undoubtedly times when the light of the Pharos outshone the sun itself. But from here, the writings and descriptions of the Pharos dry up for a few hundred years. However, one incident, if true, shows the quality of Egyptian construction. Around 365 AD, a massive earthquake struck the eastern Mediterranean, sending a huge tsunami wave straight for the city of Alexandria. The Pharos was untouched by the earthquake, and was thus able to withstand the power of the tsunami. It suffered only minor cosmetic damages, with the base structure still as strong as it was before. If this is true, then the Great Lighthouse is even more impressive than we originally thought. Tsunamis wreck buildings all the time around the world today, and some of these are serious construction projects. So for the Faros to not only withstand the tsunami, but to only take minor damages from it, blows my mind. The ancient peoples didn't just build simple structures which could be blown over by a breeze. These were serious construction projects that were designed to stand the test of time. How many construction projects can we say that about today? The writings about the Pharos do make a comeback, though, after the Arabs conquered Alexandria from the Byzantines in 641 AD. One interesting testimonial about the Pharos that survived to this day was written not long after the Arab conquest. Written in 670 AD by a French bishop, it describes the lighthouse, its purpose, and how it was operated. This French bishop says, There are men employed on the Pharos Tower to light torches and piles of wood, which have been gathered there, to serve as landmarks on the approach to the country. They indicate the narrow entry passage, the direction of the waves, and bends in the entrance. What makes this writing so fascinating is it was written by a Catholic bishop just after the Muslim conquest of Alexandria. 
It's strange to me that the Islamic Caliphate would have such a visitor so close to the capture of the city. But perhaps they were merely trying to establish relations with the Catholics in the West. But what is most significant about this writing is that it mentions that the lighthouse is still being used. In 670 AD, the lighthouse was around 800 years old, and it was still being used as if it had just been completed the day before. I honestly cannot think of another building in history that was used daily, both in modern or ancient times, that operated the same day one as it did day 800. Most buildings don't even make it that far. The Pharos would be standing high and mighty above the Mediterranean for more than a thousand years before it met its first real setback. I won't go into too many details about that here, as we will cover them more in next week's episode. But the important thing is that the Pharos was partially destroyed in the 10th century by a caliph who became convinced that the Pharos stood on top of a vast treasure. Through a combination of this search and natural elements, the Pharos began to deteriorate. It was rebuilt though, and we will go over the rebuilt Pharos next week as well. But from this point on, all of the writings that we have talk about the rebuilt Pharos, not the original. Some of the original components were there for the rebuild, but it would never be the same. This did not stop travelers, writers, historians, or tourists from coming to visit the magnificent lighthouse, though. In the 9th and 10th centuries, travelers and explorers came from all over the world to see the lighthouse. They wrote down the size of the lighthouse and even some details about the interior. Also, in 1117 AD, a more well-known Arab traveler, Al-Jarnati, stopped in Alexandria and explored the new lighthouse. He made detailed descriptions about its dimensions, but we will discuss more of those next week when we cover the history of the Pharos. However, in 1154 AD, another traveler came to Alexandria. Al-Adrisi, an Arab geographer, made a fascinating comment about the Pharos' foundations. Now, this detail is something that I'm not sure if it was part of the rebuild or if it was something from the original. But it's such a unique and potentially important detail that I want to mention it here. Al-Idrisi mentions that the foundations of the Pharos, the strongest part of the whole lighthouse, was sealed with lead to protect the stones from the waves. If this lead sealing was a part of the original Pharos, then even more credit goes to the original builders. As great as the Egyptians were at fitting their stones together perfectly, I mean, just look at the Great Pyramids of Giza, but they knew that the repeated pounding of the waves would chip away at the stone and cause it to become less stable. I personally believe that this lead ceiling was on the original Pharos. Everything we know about the ancient Egyptian architects tells us that they would have known that the lighthouse's foundation had to be the strongest part of the whole building and be able to withstand the waves. And because metal was the most expensive material in the ancient world, it was hardly ever used in construction, to this magnitude at least. The Colossus of Rhodes is the exception. Aladrisi gives us a fairly detailed description of the new Pharos. But by far, the most specific description we have was done just a few years later. 
1165, Al-Balawi, an Arab traveler, made meticulous measurements of the Pharos. As with previous descriptions of the Pharos, I will not get into them here. I will discuss all of those next week. But for now, what's important is that both of these men traveled to Alexandria, stood on the Great Lighthouse itself, and made first-hand eyewitness descriptions of the wonder. And we still have these writings today. In 1182 or 1183, Ibn Jubair, an Arab geographer making a pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca, stopped in Alexandria and wrote about the lighthouse. He says the following about the Pharos. It is a guide to voyagers, for without it they could not find the true course to Alexandria. It can be seen for more than 70 miles, and is of great antiquity. It is most strongly built in all directions, and competes with the skies in height. Description of it falls short, the eyes fail to comprehend it, and words are inadequate. So vast is the spectacle. We measured one of its four sides and found it to be more than 50 arms lengths, almost 112 feet. It is said that the height is more than 150 kwama, the height of a man. Its interior is an awe-inspiring sight in its amplitude, with stairways and entrances and numerous apartments, so that he who penetrates and wanders through its passages may be lost. In short, words fail to give conception of it. This is perhaps the greatest phrase ever written about the Pharos. Words fail to give a conception of it. Yes, men measured it and took note of its foundations and the mirror, but standing there, looking up at the Pharos or standing on it and looking out at the view, must have been the most awe-inspiring feeling a man could feel. But sadly, such a feeling would not last much longer into the future. Less than 200 years later, in the mid-1300s, the Pharos was more ruins than a lighthouse. But having stood guard over the city of Alexandria for more than a thousand years, the Pharos, although not on the original list of seven wonders of the ancient world, more than justified its place on it. The Great Lighthouse of Alexandria is one of the greatest public structures in history. Used every day for more than a thousand years, it shaped the world as we know it today. Men and women throughout the ages traveled to Alexandria to marvel at its magnitude and magnificence. But next week we will cover the history of this amazing lighthouse. We'll talk about how it fell into a state of disrepair before being restored and standing strong and tall over the Mediterranean once again. We'll compare the old measurements to the new measurements and see how they match up. But eventually, the great lighthouse would fall and begin to pass into legend. But not before it shaped not just the ancient world, but the medieval one as well. And it made Alexandria the most important city in the known world for centuries. Oh,